I think everybody that starts the, the startup journey has a level of naivety in that they don't know what's gonna come. But once you get in it and you're, you're on that journey, you learn a lot about yourself, you become more resilient, you, you actually can take on more than what mentally you thought you could. There's that level of naivety, which is probably a good thing that you don't know everything that's gonna to happen to you. Because um, yeah. maybe you wouldn't do it if you did. Hi, and welcome to day one the podcast for regional startups and the organizations that support Australian entrepreneurship. Welcome to Day One is brought to you by the City of Newcastle and Newey Hub. Newey Hub is a growing and vibrant community of Newcastle startups and founders. It's a central hub where you can learn about what's going on in our ecosystem with events, available jobs and other resources. I'll tell you more about Newey Hub later in the episode, but for now, let's jump into the story of Damien Marnie. Uh, g'day everyone, my name is Damien Marnie. I am the CEO of Stackler. Um, a little bit of background on Stackler. Um, it's a, what we refer to as a, a visual content marketing platform. So essentially what we do is we work with big businesses who have big uh, uh, customer bases and generally who have a lot of those customers posting about their products or services or experiences on social media. Um, and then what our software does, it collects uh, that customer generated content. Uh, it puts it into a, effectively a library that our, uh, our customers can sift through and find really cool pieces of content or we, like we would like to refer to them as customer stories. Uh, and then they can use that content, which is effectively a picture or a video in their own marketing activity. Today, Stackler is a global company with dozens of employees and offices in the US and UK. Many of their clients are household names, McDonald's, Nintendo, Toyota, and Sony, just to name a few. But the growth of the company has not always been smooth sailing, and in recent years, they've weathered two major storms. The pandemic, which all but wiped out many of their key clients, and a legal battle with Facebook, which required Damien to make an incredibly difficult decision to keep the company afloat. We had to let you know half of our team go, um, so having to you know let 30 people go in one day was incredibly tough thing. And pulling down the the building blocks of something that you'd been you know, working on for you know, six or seven years was was tough. And knowing that all those people were who trusted you and were that came along for the ride with you um, were walking out the, out the door without a job. But before we hear about how Stackler has been able to emerge from multiple catastrophes, first we need to go back to day one and hear the story of how a part-time job in radio that was too good to pass up would ultimately lead Damien to become the CEO of a global technology startup. Yeah, um, so the, the scenario that I was in, and it was, you know, looking back at it, it was sort of a little bit sort of uh, you know, cavalier in a way. I'd been working in you know, professional sports for, for quite a while and I, I had a, a job offer with uh, the NRL and it was a good job and it would have provided me with good security and it was something that I was going to be you know, comfortable doing. But also at the same time, um, I was also doing some broadcasting um, on the side and you know, with you know, various networks, mainly in Melbourne. And it was always my dream job to uh, broadcast with Triple M. Uh, I always listened to it when I was in Melbourne and, and just loved the, the whole style of um, their, their production. And I got this offer to, to go on broadcast with them. Um, and I was super excited by it. And it was actually the second time I'd 
being given the offer. The first time I had to knock it back because I was working at a, a, a competitor, um, mm. a competitor radio station. So I had to knock it back, which was devastating, but um, I had to swallow that one. So the second time it came around, I was very reluctant to give it up. So um, I did tell the guys at the NRL, I said, look, you know, I would like to, to also broadcast on the side um, as well as working here. Um, and they were not keen on that idea at all. So um, I, I made the decision to accept the, the job with Triple M, which really was just a, a part-time job on the weekends. It was never going to pay the mortgage or pay the bills. And that was the catalyst to sort of uh, you know, get out and um, get out of the security of a nine-to-five job um, and start to do whatever work I could as a consultant or um, right. you know, ultimately that led to me starting the agency. So Peter Cassidy is my co-founder. Uh, we actually started working together um, at the Macquarie Radio Network, um, where we worked together on a number of digital products there. We continued uh, you know, working association when I moved to the NRL. He was working with Telstra, uh, the digital rights holder for the NRL. Um, and we, uh, we came together post those roles to, to form an agency. And we, that's what, that was called Pillar Sports. So we started that. And then... You know, it was probably through you know sort of Peter's sort of product vision around this you know, concept that we had around user-generated content that was you know, enabled us to sort of get the, the company off the ground. So Pete is a, is a product guy. Um, he's a you know, wonderful evangelist, um, and he's also um, I think you know, one of those guys that uh, you want to be in the trenches with. He's fought hard through all of the you know, the tough times that we've had. Yeah, um, so I was running a, a digital agency at the time, um, and that agency had a you know, fairly significant uh, relationship with the National Rugby League. And we had a team of uh, producers and journalists who were pumping out uh, content for the websites of all the 16 clubs um, yeah. in the NRL. Um, and as you can imagine, you know, it's, it's long-form content, it's match reports, it's injury reports, it's general news, photos. It all needs to be uh, you know, edited, sub-edited, then published. Um, and we found that that was just a, it's just a very uh, traditional way to create content and then publish it. And at that particular time, the social media was just you know, rising up um, to become this sort of really significant part of the landscape. What year were we, are we talking? It's just sort of 2011, 2012. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, Facebook was already massive. Uh, Twitter was quite prominent. Uh, Instagram had just been bought by Facebook. So it was this really sort of interesting trend that was occurring. And I think that combined with the fact that smartphones were starting pro to proliferate um, around. So. We talk about the democratisation of content creation. Um, yeah, previously, it was really the media and agencies that would create content. But now everybody had a phone and they had uh, a platform to publish that content on being the social network. So it was this revolution in content creation. We thought there's got to be a great way or it's got to be a way for our customers, which at the time were you know, sporting clubs, to be able to tap into this rich source of content in that was... It was authentic, it was created by their fans, it was created by their players, um, even the media. Uh, and it was this constant flow of content. It wasn't just you know, one-off pieces of content you might create, you know, write one news article a day. There'd be thousands of photos or videos taken every day by people who were associated with that brand or that club. Yeah. Um, and that was the idea for it. Um, and then we thought, okay, we've got to build this technology that can just suck all this in, uh, make sense of it, uh, tag it, and then allow the, the brand or the club that's 
that has found this content to be able to publish it. Did that replace the content that these the clubs were creating themselves in-house? Like, did that just stop and they adopted this to replace no, it or did they work in tandem? It's more uh, just to complement it. Mm. Uh, I think it was just really to, to provide uh, the perspective of fans um, more so than anything. A company like Ford, um, somebody may post a cool photo of their pickup truck whilst they are on a beach. That'll be posted on Instagram, our software will find it, um, and then Ford can reach out to that content creator. They can gain permission to utilise that content, and then once they have that permission, they might put it on Ford.com, or they may put it on a Facebook ad or an Instagram ad, or utilise in any sort of other marketing activity they'll do. Do they have to reach out directly, like Ford? They find the content, they like the content. Do they have to reach out directly to the customer? Yes, they do. So that's the, one of the cool, I guess, efficiencies uh, of the platform is that you can identify the content creator and send them a, a bespoke message. Um, and then they'll, they'll generally respond and that's all logged in our platform. Um, and it's a, it's a very sort of simple, simplified workflow that um, our customers use. Does the, does the message, the, you know, the personalized message, does that go to the content creator via the platform that the content was discovered on? That's correct, yeah. So it'll appear as a comment on Instagram as an example or a comment on YouTube. Um, and it'll be from Ford. And I'll say, hey, Adam, we love this picture. Um, we'd like to use it on Ford.com. Hashtag yes to give us permission. And most people are probably pretty thrilled about that. Absolutely. They're, they're, pretty, uh, they're pretty excited that somebody's reached out to them, particularly the brand that they're passionate about and yeah. they're a customer of um, to utilize that content. I would say that yeah, 95% of requests are, are fulfilled by the customer. Wow. Damien and his co-founders were onto something big. By harnessing the photos and videos that everyday members of the public were uploading to social media, brands were able to access a new kind of marketing content that was authentic and personal in a way that typical ads never could be. Before the new venture had a name or even a complete product, they won their first client and it was a big one, providing user-generated content to the Australian broadcaster SBS for their Tour de France TV coverage. Particularly early days, we were sort of selling the dream a little bit. Um, yeah, the, the, the classic story is that I went out and sold our first deal and the product wasn't ready. Um, and we had a deadline which was um, day one of the Tour de France. Um, our customer was SBS and we were supplementing their, their broadcast with, with Stackler. Um, so we had to get it ready. Um, we didn't even have a name for the company. Um, and so there was a lot of sort of bespoke um, you know, engineering that went into getting that first instance of the product up. But you know, we had, a, we had our, our CTO and co-founder, uh, Salmon, working with us. We had another developer. Um, and we had the trust, most importantly, of our customer to, to deliver. And we got it up and running. It was a, and it was a absolutely you know, it's a fantastic debut for the product with great success and a lot of uh, industry plaudits. SBS, that's a pretty cool first customer. It was amazing, yeah. Was that a relationship you had developed like through your previous career? Yeah, it was um, purely through networks. So it was an introduction from um, a person who we knew quite well, uh, again, who worked in the sporting space. Uh, the, they introduced us to, to Toby at SBS. Uh, you know, Toby loved the concept. He's, he's an innovator, was always trying to push the boundaries with what they were doing from a, a digital perspective. Um, and yeah, he was almost in from the, the first meeting. Do you find that in getting that first customer on and, and the brand equity that they have in, in the marketplace helped with additional sales? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that you know, being able to hold up SBS as a logo and the Tour de France. And quickly following that, um, we worked on the World Cup as well. Uh, I think that 
one of the the great strengths of the, of the company from day one was our ability just to hold up a you know a customer portfolio of just household logos. We you know we still work with the International Olympic Committee. Uh, we work with World Rugby. We work with the ICC. Um, and, a, and a host of other sort of sporting organisations throughout the world. So it's, you know, it makes us extremely proud that we've worked with all those um, organisations. The first rough spot we hit was after six or seven months. We'd done a wonderful job of selling our product into our own network, which was sports and you know, media organisations. Um, and we got an initial you know, cohort of customers, but then things started to dry up over Christmas and January was quiet. Um, you know, so many people on holidays, so on and so forth, and you know, obviously the the operational costs of the business don't stop during that time. So we were starting to run low on cash. Um, but we had sold a, a deal prior to Christmas to an agency, and they ran this really cool, interesting campaign for an energy company. Uh, that campaign got a lot of trade press amongst the uh, advertising agency space. And quite amazingly, uh, probably a week or so after that article was published, the phone started to ring. Mm -hmm. And it was agencies wanting to find out more about our software, coming up to us with uh, campaign ideas that they wanted us to help them execute upon. Uh, and that honestly uh, took our you know, revenue from you know, $30,000, $40,000 up a, w a month up to well over a hundred. Um, and it solved the cash problem straight away. It solved us having to get external capital into the business and allowed us to sustain ourselves for another 18 months until we were ready to you know, take the business global and that's when we took some, uh, some actual investment. Um, you know, we started to uh, work with a person who was interested in the business, interested in investing and as we sort of continued to talk about what our goals were for the business with that individual, it became pretty obvious that we wanted to take the business overseas because that was the, um, the next step. Mm. Um, you know, Australia's a great market to, to test a product in and we, we're still really strong here, You've got a ton of customers and you know, it's really important to our overall sort of um, strategy as a company. Yeah. But there's obviously bigger opportunities overseas. And we started to see customers inbounding us um, from the US and the UK. Um, we had a reseller in the UK and he was getting some good traction early. Um, you know, we, we bought on a couple of um, uh, EPL franchises, which was just wonderful, including Manchester United. Um, so that was the catalyst for us to say, yeah, this is a, a fertile opportunity for the company, uh, but we're gonna need cash to, to set up an office or set up multiple offices overseas. And that's when we decided to take, and that was sort of late 2014, we took that money. It wasn't until we took venture capital that we actually invested quite heavily and we really um, added a lot of team members. You know, we opened up our US and UK offices. So the, um, the monthly operational costs of the business, you know, tripled pretty quickly. Um, and the lag, like you, when you invest in, you know, for instance, when you invest in salespeople, there's a lag until that salesperson starts to generate revenue for you. So it's usually a ramp period where they learn the product, um, they need to be trained, um, and then you, you let them loose after three or four months on you know, uh, a real life sales situation. So the payback period can take quite a while. Um, and then you know, some of those salespeople may not work out, so they're not actually generating any money for you, and they've cost you, you know, fifty, sixty thousand um, dollars, and those sorts of things happen with us, and that's not um, atypical at all. Um, so there were times where we probably 
were over optimistic about you know how much money our salespeople could generate um, and how quickly and that's where we ran into to problems with with cash I think that you know some of the most stressful times that we had was where where then not only my uh, livelihood and my, my family's livelihood was at stake but you know that of our workers as well yeah. um, there's a couple of times like that where you know cash became tight um, and we had to sort of we had to really sort of work hard to, to rectify that situation, which you know, luckily we did. Um, and yeah, I think that number one, identifying that, doing something about it, and then learning from it and making sure that it doesn't happen again is, is important. That took a while, you know, it, it, it takes, I think that there, there certainly would have been times when I made the same mistake twice. Mm. Um, but hopefully, uh, yeah, I don't think I've made that mistake the third time. <laughs> As Stackler grew and went international, the focus of the company began to shift. Initially, they had tapped into their existing networks to work primarily with professional sports organisations, but over time, they would identify other types of clients to pursue. We found that sports clubs weren't great repeat customers. And when you're building a, a software business, you need repeat business. Um, generally, they, were, they would be excited initially and be one of those things that uh, due to resourcing usually, they weren't able to provide enough attention to and then would make a decision after two or three years to, to maybe end their relationship with us. Huh. Um, so we needed to find customers who were going to be with us for the long term and what we mean by that is like you know, six plus years is the ideal sort of customer relationship or in fact, you know, I guess a relationship with a customer um, that goes on forever. We went from, you know, as I mentioned before, being sport and agency focused and our sweet spot now is travel. So yeah. you think about travel and what people do when they're on holidays, they take photos and they put those photos on a, on a social network. That seems to have become almost like uh, an intrinsic part of anybody's um, travel experience. Yeah. So that type of customer for us was um, a no-brainer. And that, it, I mean, it took a while for that to evolve. It probably wasn't until you know, years two and three or four in the business that that became really obvious and we then focused a lot of our product development, a lot of our marketing and, and value prop towards that type of customer. And I think that you know, we, we undertook like a fairly significant exercise in uh, I think it was 2017 to just look at all of our customers that we had mm-hmm. over the lifetime of the business, how long they stayed with us for, how much they spent. The, the time it takes to sell to those customers um, and a range of other factors. And that's when we settled on you know, travelers being the main one. But we also threw in um, verticals like automotive um, and education and consumer packaged goods or FMCG. And this is just based purely on the fact that you analyze all your customers and these are the ones that were sticking around. Yeah, they're sticking around, they're paying the most money, um, they're getting the most value out of the product, so they're in the product a lot, uh, utilizing it you know, ideally on a daily basis. Um, and then we also sort of took a bit of a gamble on uh, some other categories that we thought would mature and adopt the, the technology. So mm-hmm. it was a little bit of um, you know, data-driven decision-making, but also there were some bets made as well. I think that when people are uh, on a travel experience or they're having, they're having a travel experience or if they've just bought a motor car, mm. they're sort of passionate about it. You know, they want to enjoy it and I think they want to share that with people. Yeah, there seems to be like a link to lifestyle, anything to do with lifestyle. and You can show that you've got a great lifestyle and you want to share pictures about it. That's kind of the customer of the customer. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think that just where there's some sort of like, it can generate passion in people. 
Um, mm. And I think travel does that. I think people get excited about new places and they, they do want to share it with their friends. You know, people definitely get excited about a new car. Um, yeah. They may get excited about uh, new, new apparel that they buy, uh, new shoes, so on and so forth. So they're, they're the types of customers that we feel um, yeah, will actively generate content and therefore uh, the brands that sell to those customers um, are the types of customers that we target. A broader range of potential clients meant more room for Stackler to grow. And at the start of 2019, the company was riding high on success after success. But 2019 had a surprise in store for the company, which would threaten the foundation of their entire business model. 2019 was like a pretty interesting year. It was you know, probably the, the toughest one in my life. There was a, a total sort of upending of my personal situation um, but what the one thing that was going great was the company um, you know, we were growing at you know 25 percent plus we just invested a whole heap of money in, in new people um, you know the, the team in, in the US was quite big uh, a lot of new salespeople just things to to help run the business more efficiently in, in the back office um, and we, we just had this amazing uh, sales kickoff in Vegas uh, where all the team gathered, uh, you know, really sort of great bonding experience. Um, I was never a big fan of Vegas. Um, I'd been to a ton of conferences there and just, you know, laboured through all of them and didn't really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one was completely different because it was our own. Um, it was our people. Um, and whilst we we uh, played hard, we also worked really hard whilst we were there. Um, and it was a fantastic experience for everybody from, you know, flying people in from London, Sydney, uh, San Francisco, Austin, New York, um, and all gathering in the one place was was great, yeah. and everybody walked out of that um, extremely confident and excited about the, the ensuing twelve months. Yeah, so yeah, riding high. Yeah, Things absolutely going great. Like yeah. how, how how soon after that did the you know doom? Yeah, so the the um, <laughs> the, the huge body blow, which came in in the form of. Um, Facebook then the legal battle we had with them came at the end of August. In July 2019, Facebook were fined $5 billion for privacy violations. Cambridge Analytica, a British consulting firm, harvested the data of up to 87 million Facebook profiles and used the data without permission to help the 2016 presidential campaigns of Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. In wake of the scandal, Facebook banned thousands of apps that were collecting content from Facebook and Instagram, including Stackler. The ban was devastating for Stackler. Facebook and Instagram dominate social media. And so a huge percentage of Stackler's user-generated content was taken from the two platforms. Without access, Stackler couldn't survive. Unlike Cambridge Analytica, Stackler had always gained permission from the creator of the content before brands could share it themselves and they only accessed content that had been shared with the public. They felt that Facebook were unfairly denying them access to their platform and took them to court in the hopes of saving their business model. It ran for a six week period um, until our access was restored, but during that time it was, uh, it was pretty tough going for us. Um, we had to let you know, half of our team go. Um, we weren't too sure uh, when we were going to be put back on and it was such a critical component of uh, how our product functioned. Um, so not knowing that and having a finite cash resource um, led us to, to make that decision and it was the right decision to make despite the, um, the difficulty of it. 
Um, so having to you know, let 30 people go in one day was incredibly tough thing and pulling down the, the building blocks of something that you'd been you know, working on for you know, six or seven years was, was tough and knowing that all those people were, who trusted you and were, that came along for the ride with you um, were walking out the, out the door without a job. Mm. But you won that, right? The... Well, yeah, the, so the case was settled. Um, and we were allowed back on the platform and then so we, we were able to continue on and start to service our customers again and, and then sort of rebuild from there. What was the biggest learning out of that period for you that you took away from that? Um, the biggest learning is that you can't always prepare for things. This was completely left field and never get too comfortable and never think that your business is bulletproof because um, yeah, this was a great lesson or a great example of how you can become, be totally sideswiped um, and not see it coming. Um, but you, you got through that. Did things start kind of going back to normal after that for a little while before 2020 hit? You know, we sustained a lot of damage from that period and it was ongoing. The wounds that we suffered you know, continued to to bleed for you know, probably six months after. Wow. Um, and almost you know, to the day, six months after COVID hit. So that was the next sort of severe body blow that um, we sustained as a business. We've got a huge customer base in the travel sector. Um, so almost all of our customers were shut down, unable to operate. Yeah. Um, so again, that put enormous pressure on our business. Yeah, we tried to work with them as best we could, but some of them simply just couldn't. They couldn't afford to, to keep on uh, software subscriptions like ours. They just went into hiatus and pretty much sort of ceased all operations. Yeah, I think that when you've had to encounter a moment like Facebook, which was, you know, that was an existential threat. There was a cliff that we were, you know, speeding towards. You know, we would have had to have closed, closed the doors for the business, yeah. uh, turn the lights off. We got through it. It was incredibly tough, like just a, a tough time with stress, you know, sleepless nights, meltdowns, um, just this constant burden that you know, we all carried around with us. It wasn't just me and my co-founder, it was everybody in the business. Uh, everybody carried it around with them and um, it built up resilience in the team. So, so when COVID hit, it was like, okay, we'll deal with this. Like, we've got through worse, it's just another crisis. And whilst it was, it was tough, it certainly didn't generate the, the amount of concern and, and worry and stress that uh, the previous episode did. Mm. I think that probably the number one thing is resilience. You're gonna encounter tough times and you just need to be able to take that on and get around it, get over it, or smash through it, whatever mm. direction you decide to take. And I think that you know, the, the last sort of two years have sort of really sort of underpinned the importance of being able to to get up and go again. And it is hard, it can be like incredibly deflating when you encounter certain challenges in business and you question everything that you've sort of put into it and why you've chosen that path. But then you, you've just got to wake up the next day or the day after or the one after that and say, right, I'm, I'm gonna attack it again. And then start to, to look at the things that you've achieved and, and realize that you know, you've actually got something that's great here, you've built it, it's yours, and you want it to continue on and, and make it the best you can. What would you do differently if you were to start all over again? You know, doing things differently, I think that probably going back to the things I spoke about, about being more conservative in forecasting um, our success. Mm -hmm. We were very bullish. 
um, and we certainly needed to be a little bit more conservative. And that only comes through learning. I think that yeah, you you unfortunately have to sometimes learn the hard way, um, and we did on a, on a few of those things. If I do things differently, I think that the timing of what we did was right. It was early enough. I think that there was enough sort of market tailwinds to support the journey that we were on. We were tapping into a, a growing trend. It's still growing. I honestly still think that our software and our technology and it as a marketing tactic still hasn't quite reached full maturity yet. And I think it will continue to grow, um, which is I think is exciting. Yeah, so I think the, the future of Stackler is that we are seeing trends in the market um, which have probably, you know, probably been you know, very directly uh, attributed to what's happened with COVID. We're seeing you know, people diverting their spending to online uh, away from bricks and mortar because they simply weren't able to, to go into a retail environment and spend their money. That bodes well for us. Um, you know, we, we're very sort of heavily invested in the retail and e-commerce space. Uh, so we see that segment continuing to grow and therefore the need uh, for products like ours to grow as well. Mm. Um, you know, we still think that we've got a, a fantastic product, a, a very committed and devoted team. And you know, we're quite excited about the, the year ahead and particularly beyond that, particularly as you know, the economy starts to recover and you know, our buyers and people who we serve uh, gain more confidence and, and will continue to invest in products like ours. Um. Is there anything that we've missed in this story of Stackler that you know is important to cover? Um, oh yeah, I think that one of the things that I probably didn't talk about too much was the importance of people and hiring, and hiring the right people, mm-hmm. and that's not just from a, a skill set perspective, but a you know a cultural perspective. You know, we we just really highly value people who you know, make decisions for themselves and bring something to the table that you know, we don't know. Because I think that when a lot of times when employees come into a business, they're waiting to be told what to do. Mm. Um, we try and hire, pe- hire people that will tell us what to do. Mm. You're doing this wrong, this could be better. Mm. Um, so we really look, look out for people who bring special expertise and experience to, to our company. And I think that you, know, you, you live and die by not only, like by everybody you hire. Being an employer of people is a great privilege, I think, to provide somebody with a livelihood, a purpose, to allow them to experience good things in life. You know, I do remember seeing you know, one of our team members was married. It's actually a couple that met through Stackler. They got married in Australia. He was American, she was Australian. And then they went on a honeymoon of sorts and then other people from Stackler flew to meet them at the holiday destination. And seeing those pictures on Instagram was incredibly gratifying to see that you know, we, those people worked for us and we, we gave them the opportunity to meet each other and then I guess the means to be able to travel and do all those things. Um, so that was a, a really sort of nice moment to see that. Did any of their travel or for wedding photos get pulled for any brands to use? Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sure that, well I think they were at a, um, a customer's uh, resort, Hamilton uh, Island. Uh, yeah. <laughs> thanks for listening to the story of Stackler and a huge thanks to Damien Marty for taking the time to speak with me. These founder stories are made possible by our supporters. We can't do it without them. And I'm just incredibly grateful for their commitment to our local startup community and in helping us spotlight these amazing founders who inspire me and I hope who inspire you too. 
The City of Newcastle's Nui Hub is our major sponsor and I'd just like to take a second to express my gratitude for their support. Nui Hub is a great new initiative from the team at the City of Newcastle. It's an online community to keep up to date with what's happening in our region from an innovation perspective and a hub of great resources. I encourage you to check it out and sign up to be a free member. You can learn more by clicking the link in today's episode notes at welcometoday1.com or by going to newihub.com. That's N-E-W-I-H-U-B.com. This episode was produced by me, Adam Spencer, with scripting and audio editing by Andy Jones. Information about everything mentioned in this episode can be found on the show notes page at welcometoday1.com. Music by Lee Rosevere, full attribution on the Welcome Today One website. If you'd like to support this show, please consider leaving us a review or supporting us on Patreon. I'm Adam Spencer. And thanks for listening.